0: Welcome. This is the next anatomy podcast on the nose and paranasal sinuses. This follows on from the last one, the orbit. Naturally, the nose extends from the anterior nares to the posterior nasal septum. And we discussed this area because it has a particular nerve and blood supply and because of its relationship to the nasopharynx, the opening via the posterior nasal apertures, or coani, and as well because of the clinical understanding and management of severe epistaxis. The cavity is lined by respiratory epithelium, pseudo stratified ciliated columnar epithelium, and the mucosa here is very vascular, as an air-warmer. the conchi increase the overall surface area, and the inspired area is moistened, and the mucus assists in particulate trapping. Now there are a few definitions. The vestibule or vestibular area is just inside the nostril, uh, and is lined by stratified squamous epithelium. The olfactory area is in the roof, and the upper nasal septum. Quite obviously the floor is the roof of the mouth or the hard palate and the lateral wall is from above the medial orbit, the ethmoidal air cells, and below the medially located maxillary <coughs> sinus. The nasal cavity coronally is shaped like a pear and uh, the three conchi then project inwards, the largest inferiorly and the space between the conchi and the nasal septum uh, is because of the shape of the nasal cavity uh, equivalent. The nasal septum has a particular framework the vomer, the perpendicular plate of the ethmoid and the septal cartilage. This septum is usually deviated and that's of relevance in dissection or bisection of the skull as this may or may not provide the relevant sagittal image of the nasal cavity, depending on the placement of the cut. The lateral wall of the nose is best appreciated in the dried skull, and it curves down over the body of the sphenoid into the nasopharynx. There are three conchi or turbinates, or turbinate bones, here with the most inferior being the longest and broadest. The middle and the upper conchae are joined anteriorly and they diverge posteriorly. The space beneath each concha is the meatus, and above the superior concha is the sphenoethmoidal recess where the sphenoid sinus opens. And that recess is above and behind the superior concha. The posterior ethmoidal air cells open also into the superior meatus and the superior concha is really quite small. The nasolacrimal duct, which we've discussed before um, in the nasolacrimal apparatus and the previous podcast, opens into the front of the inferior meatus, about two centimetres behind the nostril. So put simply really for memory, all the other openings are into the middle meatus which has the most complex internal structure. The middle conker is midway in its size between the superior and inferior conchae, And just behind the posterior end of the middle concha is the sphenopalatine foramen. The flat area in front of the conker is called the nasal atrium, so there are some definitional points uh, here. Beneath the concha, the middle meatus, has a swelling or a convex bulge, uh, which is called the bulla ethmoidalis, uh, a rather obvious semicircular slit, which is called the hiatus semilunaris or semilunar hiatus, into which open the rest of the paranasal sinuses, the frontal sinus opening into the infundibulum at the anterior end of the hiatus, the anterior ethmoidal cells open near here, or they can empty directly into the infundibulum itself um, uh, of the frontal sinus. And then the maxillary sinus opens near the posterior end of the hiatus. And even though the ostium is often double here, that's for the maxillary sinus, part of the maxillary sinus sits dependently below this level, that is. The floor of the maxillary sinus lies at a lower level than the floor of the nasal cavity. And that, I think, you know is kind of an inherent flaw in the system design and it was the basis, really, of the old Caldwell-Luck operation where the front wall of the maxillary sinus was opened into the mouth behind the upper lip and the mucosa of the mouth was sewn to the mucoperiosteum of the maxillary sinus so as to deliberately create a fistula for sinus drainage in those with recurrent suppurative maxillary sinusitis. Um, so to reiterate, the nasal cavity is about five centimeters in length and five to seven, or five to seven centimeters in length. It's narrower transversely, about one point five centimeters at the floor and one to two millimeters at the roof because, as I've said, of its rather pear shape, and the width is further reduced by the conky. The middle part of the roof is, of course, the cribriform plate of the ethmoid. The anterior part is formed by the nasal part of the frontal bone and the nasal bone and nasal cartilage. And the posterior roof is the anterior and inferior surfaces of the body of the sphenoid. The floor, as we've said, is about five centimetres long, about one, one and a half centimetres wide, and it's formed by the palatine process of the maxilla and filled in by the horizontal process of the palatine bone. The ethmoidal air sinuses are anterior, middle and posterior cells which are squeezed between the upper part of the nasal cavity and the orbit. The lateral wall of the nose has the vestibule above the nostril with its true skin and vibrissae, the atrium of the middle meatus just above the nostril internally, and the area in front of the middle meatus, and that can have an additional elevation on it sometimes, which is called the agernasi, an additional conquer really seen in some mammals. And it's also called the nasoturbinal conquer and may contain an ethmoidal air cell that is part of the lacrimal bone. And if that area, the nasi, is large and abnormal, it can interfere with frontal sinus drainage. So these are, for example, very, uh, th- that area well developed in dogs and some birds, and it allows the air to be continually humidified so that they can run faster and farther. The nasal conchae and meatuses divide the airway, forcing the air to flow around the largest possible surface area. The upper two conchae are processes of the ethmoid, whereas the inferior conchae is an independent bone. And the short superior conchae is just inferior to the cribriform plate, and it ends anterior to the lower part of the body of the sphenoid. The space postero-superior is the sphenoethmoidal recess with the ostium of the sphenoid sinus entering posteriorly. The posterior ethmoidal air cells enter into the antero part of the superior meatus. And a second opening of the maxillary sinus may lead into the middle meatus just superior to the middle of the attachment of the inferior conca. And the position of the opening of the frontal sinus actually favours the flow of material from there to the opening of the maxillary sinus, allowing infection to spread from the frontal to the maxillary sinus. Perhaps it's another little flaw in the design of these sinuses. I think the only other point is to mention that the nasolacrimal duct, from a clinical perspective, obstruction may be treated by an external dacrocystorhinostomy or endoscopically uh, managed. I won't go into that, but that's into the anterior aspect of the meatus. Now, one of the areas <coughs> its always a bit confusing is the blood and nerve supply to the lateral nose and the nasal septum, so that the appearances of these are a little bit different I will uh, perhaps put up some images of value concerning the blood supply of the nose, but namely the lateral nose and the nasal septum. We care about the blood supply of the nose because it affects the management of epistaxis, and it's a watershed area between the internal carotid and the external carotid arteries. In a general summary, the main artery of the nasal cavity is the sphenopalatine, or it could be called the the terminal nasal part of the maxillary artery, which supplies the mucosa above the concha and the nasal septum. And for the purposes of consensus and definition, the lower anterior part of the septum is referred to as littles area and represents the anastomosis between the septal branch of the superior labial, that's a facial artery entering via the nostril, and the ascending branch of the greater palatine, which enters via the incisive canal. And that forms a little plexus in that area, which is called Kieselbach's plexus, which is the commonest site for epistaxis. The roof and the anterior part of the lateral wall is supplied respectively (coughs) by the posterior and the anterior ethmoidal arteries. So, in simple terms, one can divide the septum into quadrants: an antro superior, a postero superior, an antro inferior, and a postero inferior. Quite simply, into quadrants, the antro superior is the anterior ethmoidal, the postero superior is the posterior ethmoidal. Pretty simple. But below and posterior for the bulk is the sphenopalatine artery, which is joined by the greater palatine artery below the hard palate. And that joins the sphenopalatine by sending branches for uh, a, a Kieselbach's anastomosis through the incisive canal. <coughs> and that then only leaves the inferior section, which is the superior labial branch of the facial, as I said before, part of the... Uh, facial artery entering via the nostril. Uh, so if we're looking at the lateral wall, the other way at the lateral wall of the nose away from the septum in the way I've described it, there are slight differences, but again we think of it in terms of quadrants of blood supply. Again the antrosuperior element is via the anterior and posterior ethmoidal arteries. These are branches of of the ophthalmic or the internal carotid system, essentially. Posteriorly, the maxillary artery has several terminal divisions, the sphenopalatine artery, the lateral posterior superior nasal artery, that's a mouthful, and more inferiorly, the infraorbital, and all of those are maxillary artery branches or external carotid. An anteroinferior, as I've said, is the superior labial or facial artery. So that's all one really has to remember, to divide it into quadrants, up and bottom, front and back, and that's it. Antero superior, antero inferior, postro superior, postro inferior. The venous drainage here is not inconsequential, and sometimes I think it's forgotten a little Drainage is to the pterygoid plexus via the sphenopalatine foramen to the facial vein, and also to the ophthalmic vein and the inferior cerebral veins via the ethmoidal foramen and the cribriform plate, and in rare cases via the foramen cecum, which is usually not patent, directly into the superior or superior sagittal sinus. There's also some potential for connection into the pharyngeal venous plexus. The lymphatics from this area typically run with the veins rather than the arteries, and they drain into the submandibular, deep cervical and retropharyngeal lymph nodes. So for summary recap, the bones of the lateral nose here are at the top, the perpendicular plate of the ethmoid bone anterosuperiorly the nasal bone with its septal cartilage attached inferiorly, behind is the vomer abutting against the hard palate or the perpendicular plate of the palatine bone and most posteriorly is the medial pterygoid plate and its hamulus. And I mention all of this really as a recap to try and get some kind of orientation. Now the next is the nerve supply and again this is best thought of quadrantically in the way that we've described the vessels and in general there's a specialised olfactory area of the roof, the superior conquer and the corresponding part of the septum and these areas contain the olfactory receptors and the cell bodies of bipolar cells whose central processes coalesce as 20 or so olfactory filaments of the olfactory nerve, the first cranial nerve, piercing the cribriform plate, hence the name of the plate, to reach the anterior cranial fossa and synapse with the mitral cells of the olfactory bulb sitting on the undersurface of the frontal lobe. The vestibular area is supplied by the infraorbital nerve with its branches creeping in from the face. The lateral wall of the respiratory area is supplied as the anterior ethmoidal nerve at the front. There is also, of course, uh, the upper and lower parts innervated by the anterior superior alveolar nerve, a branch of the, uh, uh, really, of the infraorbital nerve. The upper back is then, as we can see, postro, um, superiorly the lateral posterior superior nasal nerve. That's a direct branch of the pterygopalatine ganglion, if we remember that, going back to that. And the lower back, the postro inferior part, is innervated by the greater palatine nerve. You could call that a posterior inferior nasal branch. And these enter via minute foraminae, directly through the perpendicular plate of the ethmoid. So effectively there are six nerves which supply the lateral nasal wall. To reiterate perhaps more simply, at the top is the olfactory nerve, anterosuperiorly is the anterior ethmoidal nerve, and the posterior ethmoidal a little further back. Inferiorly at the vestibular area is the infraorbital nerve via the anterior superior alveolar branch and at the back upwards is the posterior lateral superior nasal and downwards is the posterior inferior nasal a branch of the greater palatine so that that nerve arrangement is a little bit more complex but can be thought of in quadrantic terms. The nasal septum is also a little bit different in the way that the vessels were a bit different, thinking of the lateral nose and the nasal septum. The septum is supplied by four nerves and can be divided on the diagonal into a front half and a back half. That's another way of looking at it rather than quadrantically. And agreed at the top is the olfactory nerve with the anterior ethmoidal at the front and the medial posterior superior nasal at the back and with the nasopalatine which runs inferiorly to the front in a groove on the voma and which enters the incisive canal so it's a little simpler to think of it on the nasal septum as a kind of a diagonal which is all then antero-inferior and postro-superior and the antero-inferior is really innervated via the nasopalatine uh, nerve and the posto inferior bit by the ethmoidal nerves and the olfactory uh, filaments. The easiest thing here, I think, is to divide the nasal septum, as I've said, into a front triangle, the anterior ethmoidal triangle, and a back-lower triangle, a posterior and medial superior alveolar nerve and the nasopalatine nerve, which then run forward. And there's a little bit of the anterior superior alveolar nerve at the nostril, and, as I've said, not to forget, really, the olfactory nerve at the top. The nasopalatine nerve used to be called, actually, the long sphenopalatine nerve as it runs via the sphenopalatine foramen. So it's all about repetition and recapping. To recap, the nasopalatine nerve is a branch of the terigopalatine ganglion entering the nasal cavity via the sphenopalatine foramen below the sphenoidal sinus running obliquely in the lower nasal septum and joining the greater palatine nerve via the incisive canal, as well as with the nasopalatine nerves on the other side. And it innervates palatal structures around the maxillary anterior teeth, the central and lateral incisors and the canines, and the nasal septum in the way I've described it. The medial superior alveolar nerve, or middle superior alveolar nerve, is typically a branch of the nasopalatine. So one can draw label diagrams to show the nerve supply of the septum and the lateral nose. One should think of these areas then in a sense um, separately. And there are a number of pictures I might post these on vessels and on nerves. It's probably reasonable at this time to recap on the osteology of the nose, best done by examining the longitudinal section of a dried skull through the nasal septum, if you have such access. And the septum consists of the vomer, the ethmoid and the septal cartilages, the vomer being fixed to the rostrum of the sphenoid by Ailey, and that forms the posterior border of the septum by being sort of slotted into a groove on the, um, on the palate, and it extends forward where it's grooved on each side by the sphenopalatine artery and forms a suture with the upper uh, voma border. The posterior bony septum is complete, although it falls a little short of the anterior part of the vomer, where the septal cartilage fills in that space. And the central roof is, of course, the cribriform plate of the ethmoid, with the nasal spine of the frontal bone and the nasal bone at the front, and the back, the sphenoid. (laughs) On the lateral wall is the frontal process of the maxilla and the nasal bones in front, and inferiorly the palatine bone sends a vertical or a perpendicular plate across the posterior or back end of the maxillary hiatus. The upper part of the palatine bone separates into an orbital and a sphenoidal process, which articulates with the maxilla in the floor of the orbit as well as with the body of the sphenoid. And that effectively encloses a little foramen, which is the sphenopalatine foramen, leading from the pterygopalatine fossa through the lateral wall of the nose just above the back end of the middle concha. Now I guess we should also mention a little bit more about the sinuses here. The blood supply of the maxillary sinus is the facial, the maxillary, the infraorbital and the greater palatine arteries. The nerves are the posterior, superior and anterior and middle alveolar nerves as well as the greater palatine and infraorbital. The lymph drainage is to the submandibular glands. Um, and there's rapid enlargement of this maxillary sinus classically um, in the early years around about 6 to 7. When we look at the ethmoidal sinus by comparison, its blood supply is the supraorbital artery, but also, not surprisingly, the anterior and posterior ethmoidal arteries. It may get a bit from the sphenopalatine artery as well, so it's a mixed uh, um, internal carotid and external carotid arterial blood supply. The lymphatic drainage is typically to the submandibular glands and also retropharyngeal lymph nodes. The nerve supply is uh, mirroring this arterial supply, supraorbital, but also the anterior ethmoidal, the lateral posterior superior nasal, and the posterior ethmoidal. So everything that one would expect for that region thinking of it again uh, as to where those quadrantic nerves go. The posterior ethmoidal air cells particularly uh, may receive some fibers from V1 and V2 so that they can have referred pain in the typical dermatomal distribution of V1 as well. The Sphenoidal sinus, um, we just want to remember its anatomy, of course, superiorly is the pituitary, laterally is the cavernous sinus, and below is the nasopharynx, and behind is the posterior cranial fossa and pons, and that allows the, um, pituitary to be approached by a transphenoidal uh, approach for a hypophysectomy. Um, There can be close associations in the roof. Um, There, uh, the pituitary gland uh, is uh, superior, as is, of course, the optic nerve and optic chiasm. On the side is the internal carotid artery and V2, and in the floor is the pterygoid canal, uh, the nerve of the pterygoid canal, and also the palatovaginal canal. Uh, which has the pharyngeal branches of the maxillary artery, and V2. The blood supply of the sphenoid sinus is typically the posterior ethmoidal artery, but also a bit of the sphenopalatine. The lymphatic drainage of the sinus is to the retropharyngeal nodes, and the nerves innervating are the posterior ethmoidal nerve and the orbital branch of the pterygopalatine ganglion. The next area is the frontal sinus, and that's the only sinus which is not present at birth. It appears at the second year, and it drains, as we've already said, into the ethmoidal infundibulum or via a separate frontonasal duct with the anterior ethmoidal air cells into the front of the hiatus semilinaris. Its blood supply is the supratrochlea and the supraorbital, the anterior ethmoidal uh, uh, as well, and the venous drainage is out that way also into the superior ophthalmic veins, and there may be some drainage into diploic veins. The lymphatics are the submandibular nodes. Um, It's different really to the overlying skin, which would go to the preauricular nodes, so that's a little uh, trick uh, question, and the nerves of the supraorbital and the supratrochlea, which is, as you'd um, expect, branches of the frontal nerve of V1. The early enlargement of most sinuses follows the eruption of the second dentition. Uh, One other comment I think can be made also here, we probably need to mention just a little bit about the auditory tube or the pharyng- pharyngotympanic tube or the eustachian tube, call it whatever you want, although that I will cover that a little bit elsewhere when we talk about the pharynx and the sagittal aspects, the interior of the nasopharynx. But the tube connects the nasopharynx to the middle ear and effectively beyond to the mastoid antrum and the air cells. The tube is about 3.5 centimetres long. The bony part lies between the tympanic and petrous portions of the temporal bone, with the cartilaginous anteromedial two-thirds lying between the petrous temporal and the posterior border of the greater wing of the sphenoid. And by passing a probe in the pharyngeal orifice, one can see the tube running superiorly and then posteriorly and laterally passing between the tensor and the levator of Pilati muscles. The levator, palati is just that little bit inferior to the opening, and that's best seen in a sagittal, um, prosected specimen. The tube, of course, equalises the pressure in the middle ear with the atmospheric pressure, and it allows a freedom of movement of the tympanic membrane. And that route also, however, permits infections, of course, to pass from the nasal part, the nasopharynx, to the middle ear. When we consider the nasopharynx, the opening of the auditory tube is located here above the soft palate in the lateral wall, and it's guarded by a round ridge, the torus, which is the expanded medial end of tubal cartilage, and which houses... The tubal lymphatic tissue or the tubal tonsil. At the lower edge is the levator elevation of the levator palati, so that the tube looks like a little J uh, with the long limb of the J uh, lying downwards, and that is the lateral or so called salpingopharyngeal fold, which is made by the ridge of the underlying salpingopharyngeus. The pharyngobasilar fascia, which we mentioned in one of the first uh, podcasts, um, is attached to the lower end of the tube with the tensor pilate lateral and extra pharyngeal. And the levator pilate is actually intrapharyngeal, with both attached to the tube. And so, because they both take origin from the tube, swallowing pulls on the lower wall and it opens the tube and helps equilibrate the pressures. And anybody who's been on a plane knows that swallowing will assist in that uh, thick feeling when the pressures are not equilibrated. Um, Just to clarify that little point also, it's a little trick question about what's intra and extra pharyngeal. The tensor palati or tensor veli palatini, the veli means a curtain, is a slender triangular muscle situated in the pterygoid fossa and it belongs uh, really to the group muscles of the soft palate but also pharyngeal muscles along with the levator palati the palatoglossus the palatopharyngeus the musculus uvulae the salpingopharyngeus the stylopharyngeus the superior pharyngeal constrictor the middle constrictor and the inferior constrictor those are all muscles we'll consider when we Talk in the next podcast, about the uh, pharynx. The origin of the tensor pylati is the scaphoid fossa of the pterygoid process, the spine of the sphenoid bone, and um, a part of the wall, in fact, of the auditory tube. The blood supply is the ascending pharyngeal and middle meningeal. The veins from this region go back down to the pharyngeal plexus. And the nerves of the pharyngeal branch of the pterygopalatine ganglion at the osteum, we're talking now about the auditory tube, and the nervous spinosis, the meningeal branch of V3, uh, is the innervation of part of the cartilaginous portion of the auditory tube. The bony part is actually supplied by branches of the tympanic plexus, which is, of course, part of the glossopharyngeal nerve. So this area is a little complex watershed, there's a cartilaginous bit which is innervated really by V3, the mandibular division of the trigeminal nerve, but there's a little recurrent meningeal branch that goes there, and the bony portion we go a little bit higher, and it's actually the ninth nerve, part of the tympanic plexus. I think that's all that uh, we need uh, to say, a fairly uh, short podcast, the next one will be on the pharynx. Thanks so much.